Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the -the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. I met my next guest at a small car show in Palos Verdes, California. Visually impressed by his vintage Alpha, even more impressive was the six-cylinder Alpha motor shoehorned into the little machine. I was lucky the owner was standing close by, and we struck up a conversation. Intrigued by mentioning the rest of his collection, some 20-plus cars, I could only wonder about those rest cars. But I've seen them. They're all special, but I will let him tell his story. Bob Funari of Southern California, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. So let's start with that Alpha that I met you with. Tell me about that car, Bob. The uh, Alpha was uh, an acquisition we made back, oh, I guess 10 years ago now. And uh, we were up in Monterey, and somebody had given us the Gooding catalog for the auction that's held on Sunday evening. And I was looking through the catalog, and I noticed that there were a lot of very expensive automobiles. But at the front of the catalog, there was a 1972 Alpha GTV 2000, and it looked like it was probably the least expensive car in the whole catalog. So I was kind of struck by the design, the lines. Uh, It was a very appealing car uh, from a a visual standpoint. So I dragged Pam to the uh, auction that evening at Gooding, and sure enough, uh, we were the successful bidders and became owners of our first Alpha. Brought it down to Southern California. Uh, It had been restored uh, quite nicely, but obviously there's always opportunities for improvement. So we went through and and dealt with a few of the little things that needed attention. The little things. Well, just the little things to start. Uh, And one of the things I discovered about driving uh, this Alpha is it has an incredible way of connecting to you when you're out driving it. I feel like no other car I've ever driven. So I drove it, enjoyed it uh, for a number of years. And then, uh, as you'll discover later on, uh, thought, you know, this car would benefit by just a bit more horsepower. So I went to a shop here in uh, Southern California, uh, Alpha Performance Connection, and I had them build me a six-cylinder Alpha motor to put into this car. Uh, Took two years of uh, effort on their part. And now I have uh, a little pocket rocket that not only handles and responds well, but uh, goes like stink. How much horsepower is in that car now, Bob? About 210. Uh, It's about 100 more than it came with. Is that right? That's correct. You know, the the original four-cylinder, after we did some work on it, was probably good for about 150 horsepower. Uh, the, the, the difference between 210 and 150 is very noticeable when you're out driving, no question. Now, I don't think this is endemic to just California, Bob, but one of the things that we talked about is you feel there's a place for both the purist and for the modifier, which you most certainly are in a lot of cases. Are people upset when you bring a car that has been modified, i.e. maybe let's talk about the Ghibli a little bit? You have uh, different reactions to the uh, Maserati Ghibli we have. It's got uh, a very uh, classic look. Uh, If you didn't open the hood, you'd never guess that it was anything other than a stock Ghibli. Uh, But we transplanted a Corvette LT5 uh, engine and drivetrain into the car. And frankly, I think made it a much better automobile from from a driving standpoint, reliability standpoint. Uh, So you get mixed reactions from people. People wonder uh, why I would do that to uh, a car that's becoming more and more valuable with time. And there are other people who think, hey, that's a pretty neat little uh, project. 
I think what's fascinating to me recently is uh, how resto mods uh, in the Corvette world are all of a sudden getting lots of attention. Oh, yeah. And it used to be that if you didn't have an NCRS uh, automobile that uh, was a 100-point automobile, you know, you weren't going to get much money for it. But in watching the Barrett-Jackson auction here recently, it's really the resto mods that have caught people's attention and are bringing the bigger dollars. How come? I think people uh, maybe are a little bit on to what uh, my school of thought is, and that is uh, you can have a classic look with modern technology embedded in it and end up with a better product. Uh, and I think that's what people are doing. Do people ever get upset, though? Do they ever say, hey, you're doing something wrong with your car? You know, occasionally you'll have people that, that question what I'm doing. And the thing I point out is that uh, these are my cars. <laughs> uh, you have the title. I, I have the title. And, uh, you know, I'll either suffer the, the consequences or enjoy the benefits of whatever it is that I do. So it really doesn't matter to me. You know, it's funny, too, because you had mentioned before, Bob, that you have a, you have a Ford GT and you put a lot of miles on that car. And then uh, getting ready to sell that car at, I think, 11,000 miles or something, uh, a lot of people you had mentioned wanted a car with delivery miles. Not only delivery miles, but uh, we had enhanced our uh, Ford GT uh, you know, in a fairly tasteful way. We had done uh, some uh, enhancements to the supercharger and aftermarket exhaust system and so on. And people just were uh, you know, not interested in buying cars that had been touched or modified uh, from the way they came from the factory, at least in that particular uh, automobile. So uh, what that led to, interestingly enough, was um, a, a deal where I have swapped that car for a replica, a very authentic replica of the Ford GT40 that won Le Mans in 1968 and 69. It's uh, being built uh, by the folks that uh, do Superformance products. It is incredibly authentic. And that's in South, the South African people? The South African people that built uh, my Grand Sport and uh, built the uh, Piranha Z1, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, so in a, in a sense, I feel I've kind of traded up a bit because uh, I have now a very iconic automobile coming uh, that was the only uh, car to win Le Mans back-to-back -back in 1968 and 69. Uh, fascinating history on the car. Uh, traveled with Brian Redmond in Europe. Brian drove the car in 1968 and 69 and shared with me some of his experiences uh, in driving that car, which uh, he was kind enough to put into a, a little note to me that I have uh, tucked away in my office. Mm -hmm. And well, when is that car coming? Car will be here literally within the next five to six weeks. And I can use it on alternate weekends again, Bob? <laughs> well, if you can get in it, Dave, and uh, figure out the right-hand steering and the right-hand gear shift and uh, how to make it go, you're more than welcome to give it a try. You know, I'm going to hold you to that promise, Bob. You know, I, I want to wind back to something, though, and you are one of those people, and I've met a whole bunch in my life, that feels that... There's very few cars out there that need uh, less horsepower, that with a little bit of modification, with a little bit more horsepower. So what, what else have you modified in your collection, Bob? <laughs> well, it's hard to, uh, hard to go down the list. Um, you know, we have a, uh, an Audi uh, R8 uh, Spider. Uh, I didn't actually do the uh, modification on this one, but it is one of 25 that has a supercharger on the V10 motor. So it's a six-speed V10 supercharged Audi R8 uh, that is just uh, devilishly quick. Uh, we have uh, a 67 Corvette that's got a 750-horse big block in it today. Uh, I have an ERA Cobra reproduction that Carol Shelby sat in and signed. 
that has a, a single overhead cam Ford Hemi, uh, 700 horsepower, uh, very unusual automobile. Uh, so the list goes on and on of cars that we've uh, tweaked or enhanced uh, over time. And uh, my adage is you can never have too much horsepower, just not enough traction. <laughs> and tell me about, you did something very fun with an E-Type Jaguar as well. Tell me about the E-Type too. Well, uh, the E-Type is one of my favorite cars in our collection. And uh, I was out driving it one Sunday, and some guy came shooting out of an alley, couldn't miss him, uh, went right into uh, the front of his car, and crumpled the whole car right up to the windscreen. Uh, it was going to be a write-off, I thought. Uh, but uh, Manuel Martinez, who, who works on my cars and is just a, uh, an outstanding craftsperson, uh, convinced me uh, to hold on to the car. And over an 18-month period of time, he rebuilt uh, the entire automobile. And today, it is a concourse-level E-Type, just phenomenal. It's a little different uh, from the way it came from the factory. It has Weber uh, carburation, tubular headers, uh, cams from the D-Types. Uh, and a, a five-speed transmission that is certainly much easier to work with than the uh, traditional Jaguar four-speed. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful driving car. It gets lots of attention when you drive it uh, on PCH or anywhere else where it's going get, to uh, get looked at. So it, definitely one of my favorite cars. So going down Pacific Coast Highway in that car, you get a lot of attention. I get lots of attention. It's a British racing green with a saddle uh, interior. It's an open top car. Uh, it, it's really a, uh, an iconic piece from that era. Didn't I, I think it was Enzo Ferrari that also called it one of the most beautiful cars in the world. Absolutely. At the unveiling of the uh, E-Types back in 1961 in Geneva, he was there when they pulled the cover off the uh, E-Type coupe, and he was just gobsmacked uh, by what he saw and I think realized uh, that Jaguar had built something that was better than anything he was producing at Marinello, went back, and I think really out of that experience came the 275 series, uh, which was a much more advanced automobile than the 250s. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, you had, you had said that we are lucky here in California. There are so many small shops doing unique, wild and crazy things um, like a project. And I, I think Mr. Martinez and you right now are working on kind of a special project. So let's talk about that car. Yeah, I had, uh, it always had uh, a soft spot in my heart for the uh, 275 series Ferraris, and, and they built 10 uh, very special 275s called Nart Spiders uh, back in 1966. The North American racing team cars? Correct. And uh, those cars today are $25 million and up. Uh, they're, they're just incredibly rare, incredibly expensive. And I was fortunate enough to find uh, an aluminum body uh, for that car. Uh, we found a donor chassis, uh, and we are in the process of building a, uh, a replica of one of those 275 NART uh, Spiders. It'll be a little different in that it'll have the uh, drivetrain out of a 550 Marinello as opposed to uh, the 275 3-liter uh, uh, V12 that was uh, contemporary back in the 60s. Uh, it'll be a very nice car. Uh, we've been at it for... Oh, gosh. We've been at it for 16 years, believe it or not. Uh, but, you know, part of the challenge has been finding all the parts necessary to make this as authentic as we can. Uh, hope to see it completed uh, by middle of next year. And you have promised me a ride in that car. Absolutely. Uh, I know that uh, based on the, on the work that Manuel has done on my E-Type and other cars in my collection, that when we're all done, it'll be uh, a beautiful, wonderful driving automobile, and we'll have a lot of fun with it. 
So are, are you kind of um, a shade tree mechanic? Did you want to do this? Do you, do you turn a wrench? What do you do? Uh, we never let Bob put a wrench on a car. Uh, that would be cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> so I want, I, I want to ask you, too, where you picked up this thing for automobiles. Now, I know you did your undergrad work at Cornell. You went on and got an MBA at Harvard. Um, I remember my applications coming back with ha-ha written on them to Harvard. But anyway, did what did they teach you in engineering school that made you think that uh, you wanted to do cars? Well, you know, it started when, when I was very young, uh, when I was eight or nine years old, uh, I just developed this passion for automobiles, and that's really what took me to Cornell to study mechanical engineering, and thought that I was going to be on my way to Detroit when I graduated, until I realized that uh, they weren't probably going to give me John DeLorean's job uh, upon graduation, and that took a little bit of the bloom off the rose as far as uh, an automotive career. Uh, I was fortunate enough when I came out of school the second time uh, to land in the healthcare industry, which was a rapidly growing uh, part of the economy, and had a very, uh, very successful career in healthcare, and as a result, accumulated some wealth. And found that now that I had uh, the resources, I could go and make automobiles my hobby as opposed to my career. And that's really how the collection came about. And you have particular cars. And I think I know a little bit about that, because as a collector, Bob, you have told me that you feel there were two interesting periods of time. And would you talk to me a little bit about what you feel those interesting periods of time were? I, I think the period between 1961, which was really the introduction of the E-Type, and probably 1970, which was just ahead of when all of the uh, lowering of compression ratios and taking lead out of fuel occurred, in that period of time were, were some of the most interesting and iconic automobiles uh, that, that still trigger memories for people. You know, the Chrysler Hemis, uh, you know, the Ford uh, Mustangs, uh, the Generation 2 and 3 Corvettes were all uh, really wild and, uh, and crazy cars out of that era. And I grew up in that era. I was a teenager and a young adult in that era. So th those cars, you know, have special meaning to me. We kind of went into the desert between 1971 and 1997, in my mind. And the, the late 70s and 80s were really not that interesting. Even the early 90s uh, were, were, were kind of sparse relative to uh, really interesting automobiles. But uh, in 1997, a couple of other milestones, the introduction of the fifth generation Corvette, which I think was the first really world-class Corvette, and uh, the 550 Marinello Ferrari, uh, which was Ferrari's return back to the front-engine V12 uh, design uh, that the Daytona represented back uh, in the 60s and 70s. So I think from that period, 97 on to current day, uh, you know, we're just, uh, we're, we're, we have a wealth of wonderful performance automobiles. And, and the, the irony is that most of those cars are clearly much more capable than the cars that we drove back in the 61 to 70 period of time. Mm -hmm. And a speedy stuff, too. Some of this stuff is just tremendous. Yeah. They, m most cars today, most performance cars, supercars, uh, have capabilities that go well beyond uh, what a typical driver is going to, uh, to explore. Uh, you can, if you're not thoughtful about the way you drive these cars, you obviously can get yourself in trouble. And there are lots of videos out there of people who've you know, put uh, Lamborghinis and other uh, high-end cars into uh, uh, telephone poles or into uh, other cars. You know, so th these cars are capable of doing some serious harm to you if you don't treat them uh, respectfully. 
Uh, so they, they have more performance than, than most people are capable of. Don't get me going down that road, Bob. Uh, <laughs> and I guess I guess the other thing is, is um, you... Um, you have felt that modifying these cars over the years uh, between you and Mr. Martinez has led to cars that are drivable because you had said, you and I are both three-pedal guys. Right. How come? Yeah. I, I just think it, it, it requires you to be more engaged in what you're doing with the car. Uh, you, you just have a stronger connection to the car. You can't be on the iPhone when you're you know, three-pedaling a car through traffic. You can't be doing other things that are going to distract you from the real mission, which is paying attention to what you're doing on the road and being observant uh, to everything that's going on around you. It's, uh, you know, I, I, it drives me crazy uh, to, to watch people uh, drive automobiles and think it's a part-time uh, responsibility when they've got something that can uh, literally uh, hurt or kill people uh, in, in their hands. So um, I think being engaged with the car uh, through uh, stick and pedal is, is, is one of the things that makes, for me, ma makes it uh, a more enjoyable experience. I know your education also led to a couple of other things, and I know that you work a little bit with Southside Schools here in Los Angeles. Um, your your foundation and through your philanthropic efforts have led to kids trying to do better in life, being presented with uh, maybe all the breaks that you've had, and giving a little bit more of that back to uh, through the community through philanthropy. You and your wife, tell me a little bit about that too. Yeah, we were we were fortunate enough to uh, to, to come across a orthopedic surgeon in his wife, who back in 2001 uh, had, had read a book uh, written by somebody on the LA Times about the uh, South Central High Schools uh, here in Los Angeles. And uh, a number of the young people going through those high schools who had, through perseverance and determination and just all-out grit, uh, managed to rise above uh, all the things in their environment and, and go on to be successful in college and in their careers. And they, they looked at what it was uh, that these young people had, and it was a combination of things. They were intellectually gifted, uh, but more importantly, they were determined, resilient, persistent. And their feeling was, you know, let's identify more of those young people and let's give them the resources and support they need uh, to not only be successful academically, but to be able to go uh, on and have successful uh, lives, successful careers, and, and be significant contributors uh, to their communities. So that's been going on now for uh, almost 18 years. Uh, we've probably taken 750 students through that program. Uh, the interesting statistic, uh, particularly given what you read about uh, the problems of people not completing degrees and, and ending up uh, dropping out with big student loans, we graduate uh, 96 to 97 percent of the students we take in within six years of starting their programs. Wow, that's that's a pretty high statistic. Yeah, it's you know these kids are incredible. Uh, you know, and, and every every one of them has a story. Uh, and and Pam and I both have, have had a chance to meet these young people, uh, spend time with these young people, and and it just blows you away. Uh, the, the the things that they have been over able to overcome and their resilience, determination, persistence is just it's inspiring to see it. Okay, thanks for that, Bob. And I also want to ask you a couple of final questions. And um, the, the, I think the first one's kind of easy, truthfully. What it really gets down to is, what's what's the favorite car that you own right now? What's your what's your current favorite? And I know it's like kids; you don't want to, you know, you want to say this silently, perhaps, or whatever it is. But of the cars you have right now, what's your favorite? Uh, 
you, you would not be surprised to know that that's uh, about the 18th time I've had that question. Uh, so I've had a chance to give it a lot of thought. Um, when I've, when I've been asked that question, I, I, I point to the 1963 E-type that we have in our uh, collection, probably uh, second from the bottom in terms of the lowest amount of horsepower of, of anything in our collection. So it's not, a, uh, you know, a, a huge macho automobile. But for me, um, to see a car like that uh, engineered and brought to life in 1961, uh, when everything else around it uh, w was pretty archaic. I mean, a car with four-wheel disc brakes, independent front and rear suspension, overhead cam engine, incredibly beautiful design, 150 miles an hour right from the factory. In 1961, that was like uh, going to Mars. It was just a, an amazing automobile. And I think because it is so iconic, uh, and to this day, one of the most beautiful automobiles ever designed. Here, here. Uh, to me, it, it's got it's to be my favorite. Uh, and, and uh, you know, very privileged to have been able to find one and, and bring it to my collection and to have Manuel really uh, bring it up to a level of, uh, of standard here that uh, you can be very proud of. I can't wait to meet this guy, Manuel. <laughs> He's an incredible uh, gentleman. Uh, he and his family, uh, we, we've been close to them for the last uh, eight or nine years. Uh, great family. Uh, Manuel is incredibly gifted uh, as a restorer, as somebody who works on automobiles, and uh, more than that, just a very decent human being. Another question I always ask at the end of an interview, especially with a car guy. Bob, you've been around cars like me all your life. You've been to car shows. You've been all over the world, which gives you a great experience, uh, a great depth of, of knowledge about cars. So money, no object. What would you buy in the world if you could only buy one car? One car, money, no object. What would you get? You know, I would probably uh, buy a partner to the 275 Nart Spider that we're doing. I would go out and buy an authentic uh, 275 Nart Spider and uh, put it next to the one that we're uh, building as a uh, as a replica. Well, if you're looking for a partner, I got a couple hundred bucks and uh, I'm, more, I'm more than happy to go a little bit on that. As a final follow-up question, again, you've been all over the world. You've, you've had uh, a number of successful careers, which you still continue to work in, especially in the health field. But in your opinion, big question, what constitutes a good life as far as you, you're concerned? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I was growing up, my parents, I think, tried to give my sister and I three things uh, to, to carry on with. Uh, a, a good set of values, uh, which they, they modeled in their behavior. Uh, as much education as we, could, uh, as we could pursue or tolerate, I guess and uh, a sense of being uh, loved uh, in our family. And that, to me, is a, is a foundation then for going on in life and, and looking at turning around and giving back out of the blessings that we've enjoyed. One of the things that I don't think we do enough of is express gratitude uh, for the things that we have and the experiences we've enjoyed. So living a good life is, is being grateful and uh, making a difference in the lives of other people looking for opportunities to uh, support people who need the support uh, that maybe they're, they're lacking, uh, and to feel good that you've made a difference somehow along the way. 
Thank you for that, Bob. And uh, Bob, also with his 20-car collection, has mentioned that he, he doesn't always have the time to get out to drive all these cars, to rotate them through the maintenance, because obviously cars, when they get not driven, or they're not, they sit around for a while, they get sticky and everything, and I've offered to be Bob's assistant. And like I said, $1,000 a month, that's all I can afford to pay him to, uh, to run through his car collection. Uh, uh, Bob, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, I can't wait to take a ride and drive some of these cars in the future. And Bob, one more thing. If people want to get in touch with you professionally, is there an email you'd prefer? Yeah, well, the uh, email address to reach me at is my last name, Funari, F-U-N-A-R-I, B as in boy, at CEO.net. Thank you for that, Bob. I'm hoping people get in touch with you, even if they've got questions. I know you've answered a zillion questions for me today, and uh, people will probably reach out, and they're going to ask you other questions that I, w I wouldn't have asked. So I want to thank you for your time. Bob Finari, collector in Long Beach, California. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Drive with Dave podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear and see more about exotic sports cars, you can connect with us at drivewithdave.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Also, catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks again.